My word, it is an absolute pleasure to present my next guest, Dr. Alex Cameron, a man of many slashes, heavy slashes, a reconstructive surgeon, owner, endless recordings, lead guitar, bad dreams. What a heavy bunch of slashes that is. Fantastic. Camo's got great stories, a longer podcast today. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Alex Cameron. Hey. Stephen. How are you, Camo? I'm good. Is this uh, the... Are we live? We're not, we're not live, like, live on the internet, but I'm recording us right now, so welcome. I could hear the change in tone of your voice from when we just spoke previously. To, I was like, this, <laughs> this is now show business, Steve. Well, yeah, show business, Steve, so I changed personas. Well, we, definitely a bit of extra pizzazz out there. Well, because it's the start of the it's the start of the episode, right? So I've got to introduce you as Doctor Alex Cameron. Okay. Well, yeah, that's all. I wouldn't have expected any less. So, what, what's your like? What's your day to day like? Like, maybe not now because I suppose the music industry is only just starting to come alive again. But what's your day to day like when you're trying to balance that kind of work with with baddies? Well. Um, I mean, the job that pays my income is being a surgeon. Mm-hmm. So most days I am doing that. And one of the good things about surgery is that some days you, it's quite varied. Like some days you'll be seeing patients either that have had or had surgery or will be having surgery. Mm-hmm. But then some days you'll be doing a list of operations that are elective surgery. So things that have been sort of, booked in advance mm-hmm. and then some days it's a combination of those two things um and some days you know and and in, in fitting in emergency surgery so a lot of the hand surgery is like emergency work yeah and then um i'm lucky enough to have sort of been in where i'm in the position where i can combine that with music so you know if bad dreams have got a tour or um any other commitments coming up then i'm able to just as long as I, I can just work that into my schedule and um, and then go away and do that and be able to focus on music. So you got the um, kind of freedom. Much. You got the kind of freedom in your schedule to kind of to mold that around your around whatever you want to do, right? Yeah. Whereas there were some pretty hairy times because well, I'm like a consultant now, but when I was mm. training a registrar, and that that means you're in the public hospital all the time, and you're sort of running the show there mm-hmm. it's very it's not very easy to have flexibility in your schedule no i can imagine like, you know one in two or one in three days so there was always some pretty hairy moments where i was you know having to juggle you know call on a few favors from who i was working with or do mm-hmm. a whole stretch of on call at once so that i um so that yeah. i then could have um time off and then, oh yeah, there's sometimes where I was sort of rushing out of work to make flights and sometimes missing them. And, yeah, so early on in the Bad Dreams journey, we had to, you know, get Ali to come in and be yes. my backup. And that um, was, of course, that it ended up resulting in Ali just seamlessly joining the band. Yeah, well, it was a it was a it was a blessing really to get him into the fold, and then that, and then sort of recruit him as an extra guitarist um but it was yeah it was difficult there for a while because it was yeah i felt torn between doing two things and feeling 
I mean, it's great. It's a it's a blessing to be able to do those two things. But mm. um, you know, also at times I felt like I was doing two things a bit poorly, rather than you know what I mean. Rather yeah, than yeah. Doing one of them well. So does the change in lifestyle from the, the change in lifestyle from from the hospital kind of to the consulting that you do now allow you to execute both like better? Yeah. Well, and also I made the choice to come to work in Bendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's hard. It's 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 not many surgeons choose to work in non non cities in regional mm-hmm. areas. So the advantage of that for me and the setup I have here is it does offer that flexibility like you know um, for various reasons it means I can work with a really good partner who yeah I was pretty clear on that from the start but mm. that's why I was coming here to be able to have that flexibility and yeah it's a dream come true really I wasn't sure I wasn't really ever sure whether that would be it would be possible to um, set up this type of situation but it yes. has been and yeah it's really been yeah, it's a lot less stressful, that's for sure. What's the what's the hardest part about that kind of work? Like reconstructive surgery? Um, it's a good question. Because um, I can imagine there being so much pressure. You know, yeah, in surgery in general. Like most jobs, are, you know, most jobs, like most jobs that, um, you know, it becomes, lots of stuff becomes run of the mill. Mm-hmm. Mm, the hardest thing. Um, I'd, I'd say the hardest thing is managing um, patients' expectations. Probably. Okay. Like um, you, some you know people sometimes think of plastic surgery and they think that you're going to be able to wave a wand and you know make them look like Brad Pitt mm-hmm. when they're a 97 year old with covered in skin cancers. Um, so yeah, sometimes, and that's an extreme example, but getting people, making sure people's expectations of what you're going to be able to achieve are realistic. Yes. Um, and you can't always necessarily guarantee that, right? When you like essentially working with the body being a a biological thing, you can't guarantee the results will be exactly right. Make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear is a, is the saying that goes around, but you can only you know, work with what you've been given and yes. can. Um, In video editing, we call that you can't polish a pile of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the challenge always in surgery is maintaining a balance between the amount of work you have to do mm-hmm. and then making sure that, you know, each patient is getting treated with the same care and, um, detail as the next one. Yes. And also that you are able to maintain, you know, a good team working environment, civility with your colleagues, because surgery is very capable of entirely like eating you up. You know, there's always more work to be done, especially like, well, anywhere you do it really. Mm-hmm. So you have to be um, judicious about like what you take on how far you push yourself, balancing um, the different aspects like of, of your work, making mm. sure you have, don't, do have time to stay healthy and do other things. Um, 
yeah, because otherwise you can. There's a lot of surgeons who don't get that balance right. Yeah, they either you know, then either it ends up affecting their. Well, it doesn't usually affect the quality of their surgery as such, but it affects the quality of their interactions with their patients and colleagues, um, and mm-hmm. their, them as you know, they can become sort of people that aren't that. I mean, surgeons have a bad reputation sometimes for that reason. And yeah. Luckily for me, the music is a great counterbalance because that force, you know, that's a forced um, balance. Yes, I life. can imagine that being really, really quite crucial to people in that field, right? Having having like another part of your life to offset. Or well, to offset yeah, lot, but the nature of surgical training and what you have to do to get into it means those things are often sacrificed early on. So yeah, so it's kind of a lifestyle thing. Sort of, yeah, and that means it can lead to. Yeah, then you can easily just get swallowed up by the the job and become a bit of an empty shell of a person. Have you seen that happen? Oh yeah, well yeah, it's that's one of the big problems in surgery. Like it's not a, it's a what people would call a vocation. You know, it's Mm -hmm. still to this day you sort of you can't really be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be a surgeon, but you know, just work three days a week and or two, you know take it really just have a really good lifestyle like it it requires you can't really do it without without deciding you're going to devote, devote a whole part of your life to it because you need to learn all these skills and there's so much to training you have to go through and so many hoops you have to jump through to get through that training yep um but it's yeah it's it's basically it almost forces you to do that um, Isn't it so interesting that like maybe the the medical training, medical school, and then followed by specialising is so intense that it kind of trains you to be in an unhealthy um, routine of, of working? Yes, I think that's... And it's, other specialties have um, done better at um, mediating that. Mm-hmm. Surgery has, hasn't. Um, for example, like, you know, anaesthetists who also work in theatre their culture around work is a lot different. They have, you know, they have very controlled hours. They don't work over a certain number of hours, mm-hmm. you know, a week. Um, they're very sort of supportive of each other. Um, they're, they're very sort of, there's not, it's not very hierarchical. Surgery is the opposite. Surgeons tend to be, you know, they sort of work alone a lot. They're not as good at coming together and, um, working as a team is more competitive uh, and it is a yeah there's a comp- competitive edge to it and it's an extremely still a very hierarchical um situation like i was still calling you know at the age of 35 36 mm-hmm. i'm still going to work and calling um my boss mister yes okay know, which it's... is but i mean again like it's like you know and and if you're thinking of comparing it to like military training, there's some utility in that because you have to surgery. You can't, you can't be fucking around. Like you yeah. can't, you know, you can't just be casual and slapdash about it because you're, you know, a mistake is potentially someone's, a big, a, a, someone's life or livelihood. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, it, you know, I found that pretty hard to swallow. Like, you know, there was one boss who I particularly disliked who basically just bullied me the whole training. Is that right? And after I passed my yeah, after I passed my final, I mean, not all, I shouldn't all not all my most bosses. Well, a lot of bosses were like, just call me, you know, just call me Stephen. You know? Yeah, yeah. Just call me Tom. Um, but lots were like, you know, you call me Mister So and So. 
Yeah, okay. And then there was one that, um, you know, when I passed my exam, he's like, well, Alex, I guess now you've passed the exam, you are technically considered my equal, so you may call me Richard. Oh, like, like, that's well, a real treat after all that. You get to call him Richard. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, fuck. I mean, it's like, I didn't, I never called him Richard again. Like, I was like, you know, you're all, as if I'm going to start calling you that now, you treated me like a bitch for yeah. seven years. Like, you're not going to, I'm not going to treat you as a, you know, I don't want to treat you as a, without any sort of, any sort of modicum of being, being my friend. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. got a bit of a p- private school kind of vibe, it seems. Oh, yeah, uh, of course. I mean, it's a very male-dominated, white, mm. white male-dominated environment. And, yeah, most yeah, by nature, most people have gone to private schools, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it seems to just have that kind of, um, you know, who you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is it real money-focused? Do you think there's a lot uh, of drive for people to specialise? So it's, like, it's not sort of nepotistic in that way so much. Right, more, okay. Because, yeah, it's, it's it, the outside, you can't really get by. You wouldn't mm. be able to get through surgery just because, like, your, your dad's mates with someone because... Yeah, okay. That, yeah, it, it doesn't have that aspect to it, but it does have... It does... It is a dog-eat-dog world, and if, if you're sensed as sort of weak or, um, you know, not towing the line, then you can be... You can be treated very badly. Is there a... I mean, dro- which, for me, interesting enough, the music thing... So basically with Bad Dreams, it started, what happened with Bad Dreams was I was doing my PhD. Yeah. Um, so I had all this spare time and I got back into music, realized that, um, you know, I still wanted to be a big part of my life. Mm. After after your previous band, when you were in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, started having a band writing songs. James Miles got involved. Mm. Band, you know, did well and... I had a lot of un, un, um, unfulfilled uh, goals with music, and yeah, and for better or worse, one of those, you know, some of those were sort of to really give it a good crack and get on the radio and a little unfinished time. business on the stage, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Well, creatively as well, but you know, there was a part of it where I was like, I never really. I don't think I'd, I didn't really put my songwriting to the test of trying to write songs that would appeal to a broad range of people. Yes. Anyway, so the band started um, taking off, and just at that time, I had to go back to the time for my PhD finished. I'd go back to working in the hospital, you know, those long hours and whatnot. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, I kept the band thing very quiet because I knew what the reaction of some of the very conservative bosses would be. But um, yeah, okay. It, it eventually, you know, you can't really hide that stuff because the problem is, like, some of the boss, some of the bosses really liked it. Mm-hmm. A few of them, like, some of them came to my gigs and whatnot. One of the, one of them, my favourite, probably, wrecked her like Christian Dior shoes in a, in a particularly like beer sodden gig at Fowler's Life. Oh, really? Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. Fowler's on you know, like, uh, West Terrace. Very well dressed, very well dressed lady. Always had expensive shoes, and she complained that it, she wrecked this particular pair of shoes because there was so much beer thrown around in the crowd. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but so those ones probably, you know, talked about it, and then the more arsehole ones found out about it, and they used that against me. Um, I felt like, well, they had a, you know, they really disliked it and thought it was inappropriate. Really? An inappropriate thing, yeah. And it's, I never 
once during my training, you know, asked for any time off or any exemption. For me. It was entirely, there was no crossover with work with it. That that boggles my mind that they can have such a negative view on your on a hobby on the side for someone to do what they want to in their spare time in playing music. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember one particularly harrowing experience where um, I um, was getting, you know, part of all, all your training is you kind of get asked questions in a formal setting, which is to prepare you eventually for the final exam which is kind of like an oral exam yeah and when early on i was getting asked these questions about um it was about i think it was like about jaw fractures mm-hmm. uh, and the anatomy to do with them and um how to treat them and everything and at that stage i knew very little on this topic and um i got asked a question this and this is in front of like 10 15 people like the medical students are there um mm-hmm junior doctors, nurses, physios or whatever. It's like the big sort of meeting. Mm-hmm. And I um, got asked a question, didn't, you know, got it wrong, got asked another question. And I was like, look, sorry, I, I don't know this, got to go away, it's an area I need to go away and learn more. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer. This particular boss just kept asking questions. 10, 10 15 minutes. I was, yeah. like floundering, I was floundering. I didn't know my stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is in front of, Making me look foolish, basically. Right. Humiliated. And then at the end, he's like, well, maybe you should go and read a textbook instead of writing songs. Oh, wow. And I nearly quit. Um, I came pretty close to quitting surgical training that day. Really, at that juncture? Yeah. Yeah, because I just felt... Well, I just felt so pissed off about it, but also I just felt, you know, that, that when you when someone who's a figure of authority um, mm. makes you feel that stupid and, um, you know, humiliated, then it's, yeah, well, you're like, well, am I, you know, you know, am I doing the right thing? You know, am I not cut out for this, whatever? Which and that's such a personal attack as well, very tailored to you in particular. That's a real personal attack. Yeah, and there was no, you know, some hard things can happen in your training, which at the end of the day make you a better surgeon and need to hear them or do them. Mm. But in this case, I couldn't, there was no, the only benefit of this was to make me feel shit. Yes. Um, And maybe to make him feel big in some sort of way. And yeah, I never, I, yeah, luckily I just used that as motivation to uh, Mm. continue and, and never, you know, when I got to when I got to his position, which is now essentially never to never to behave that way, or yes, um, and also to exact cold revenge on that man one day when he's expecting it. <laughs> What's your plan? Which, don't worry, I will. Yeah, it better involve a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, happy. How do you like how do you like that song? Yeah. As, I, as I smash a, a Stratocaster, an eighty-seven Stratocaster over his head. No, not the eighty-seven like Strat. It's got to be a Squire. Don't waste a premium like guitar. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't waste it. Yeah, I wouldn't waste a Strat on him. What's your guitar of choice at the moment? Because I remember in in Dardanelles and then the start of Baddies, you were playing that uh, that 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 cream Strat. White electric white Olympic right. white um, Oli- oh, yeah, sitting yeah. next to me at the moment I'm actually sitting at my little recording station oh uh, yeah okay 
I still really liked that guitar. Like, it was idiosyncratic because it had... I mean, I had no idea what I was doing when I bought that guitar. Mm. And for some reason, I... It was from the legendary swap shop on Elgin Street. Went in there. Yeah. Um, had some cash because my... I think I had this Garrison or something, acoustic, electric. Which is yeah. Not a great guitar. Um, a Garrison? Stolen. I've never heard of a Garrison. I think that's what it was called. But anyway, it was not a notable guitar. It got stolen from my parents' house in Adelaide, and I got money for it from the insurance. I had like, I think I had like 1300 bucks or something. Yep. Um, this is circa 2003, maybe. The perfect Quite amount to go in and buy a new Fender off the shelf. Well, part of the the new NU rock, not new metal, but new new rock revolution, you know, strokes were, were just starting to come out and I, I'd, it had really piqued my interest in music. Yeah. So I went into the music swap shop. There was this old guy there, old rock. I'd love to have known who he, his story, but he was, an, you know, he's obviously like a career musician. He was about, he could have been anywhere between 50 and 80. Yeah. He smoked so many darts in his stomach. Um, <laughs> And he was in there and I saw the white Stratocaster on the wall and I was like, that's the same guitar that that guy, Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes plays. And I was like, oh, how much is that? And I think it was almost exactly the amount of money that I had. And yeah. then I asked this guy to, um, I bought it off him and, and he then he, I somehow ended up having a few guitar lessons with him. Oh, right, okay. In there after hours, just light up dart after dart inside and he was he was not a basically the lessons just consisted of him sort of shredding blues licks with me kind of watching and trying to copy him not really talking at all it was awesome he was and i think he died like not long after that um oh wow but he, i never really talked he never really talked but he was very expressive in just like um how he it was just yeah i just felt like he was a guy that would have had so many stories about music and yeah, you know, I, wish I'd, I wish I'd found out who he was and what his story was. But that was a great shot. Yeah, so that guitar. But then, like, for some reason, it's an 87 Strat. Not mm. a particularly American, but not a, like an amazing guitar. But for some reason, I swapped out the neck pickup for a Mustang pickup. And then, right. Yeah, I don't know. I just managed by accident as I was great. Then I'd, you know, start to buy a few pedals and yeah, your music tastes mature. Um, mm-hmm. so I was like, yeah, quickly got into stuff like, you know, Joy Division and, yeah, um, Ride and The Cure. Yeah. Um, cause I always associate, I always associate you playing that Olympic white strat with yeah. a lot of the sounds that came from your, from your pedals. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I had this very, a sort of cheap, there was a thing called a double muff, like a kind mm. of a cheap muff. They had an extremely thin sound, but the combination of that with the Mustang pickup and then um, a Boss DD20 delay mm-hmm. um, and an old Boss chorus pedal. But these are just things, you yeah. know, you're just totally flying blind at this age. You're like going to the guitar shop and you're the yeah. swap shop usually and you see some pedal there yeah. um, and you just buy it. You plug it in, no idea about what order to put it in. Yeah. And then you, it's, a, it's, it's, and then you, yeah, I came up with this particular sound and, and something about that pickup that could be driven quite hard without it getting too brittle and hard right. to distortion. And yeah, so I used to run the chorus before the, I think I used to run the chorus and delay before the, um, 
the double muff pedal and oh wow yeah yeah, sound, and then so you try unique. and re- recreate that sound later, yeah. and you can't because it's just so specific to that that setup, that guitar, and that shitty. Or you try and run a different guitar through those same pedals, and it doesn't yep. sound the same at all. Because it doesn't have that one Mustang pickup. One of the annoying things you can't go back to that naivety mm. um, ever. But you've got to, you can find new ways of naivety. Mm-hmm. You know, by picking up a different, you know, like tweaking up different instruments or. You know, trying to start recording yourself, but you don't know what you're doing, all of that sort of thing. So that's part of the but magic, yeah, though. It is. It's something I've mm. learned about the process. Like you have to, mm. you have to. Um, well, you look at so many great artists, and they've taken, you know, the ones that have had longevity in their in their successful creative output, have often taken some pretty wild, wacky turns. I mean, I always talk Bob Dylan one of my favourite artists and he's mm. a huge example of that but all sorts of acts um, and you sort of realise you know when you've gone through making music over a time that the reason they've done that is you can't as much as you Bob Dylan or would have loved to make Blonde on Blonde probably again and again yes you just can't like you can't re- you can't go back and recreate whatever was that particular combination of factors that led to that creative output. And if you try to do it, you're going to just create a, a, a faded facsimile that's going to be shit. And in fact, he said that. He's, some quote about him talking now, he's like, I could never write, I don't know how I wrote Visions of Joanna or mm-hmm. um, I don't know how I wrote um, Like a Rolling Stone. And I can't do it now. I couldn't do it. I can't do it. He's so and tied so to that time. Well, yeah, you just, and so that's why, but in his career at some, you know, then he's gone from, you know, he went from, well, he went from being a sort of the folk, folk, folk artist to um, going electric, then to going to sort of Nashville mm-hmm. country, then to going to this confessional sort of songwriting of the mm-hmm. blood on the tracks, then to like, then getting, you know, Christian rock, um, and then sort of all the, you know, towards these days, which is kind of the bluegrass and, you know, basic blues that he does. And, and yeah, other artists that have done successfully over such a long time, the same, like Neil Young or um, yeah. all sorts of people, like they need to, or even if you look today, like someone like Kendrick Lamar, like, you know, quite early on pivots towards like really jazz sounding, Yeah, you know, initially hip hop, like almost a concept album, then like, you know, very jazz inflected album. Kanye West, and again, you know, like, Yes. The pivot that those guys take is, I think, what's enables them to do really make, make, keep, continue making great stuff because they're continually probably inspired. Yeah. Um, Tyler, the creator as well, like just uh, like evolving genres nonstop. Yeah. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Dylan like, wasn't Dylan uh, always just trying to do shit that people wouldn't like, and then when people really started to like what he was doing, he was like, "Fuck this! I'm not playing acoustic guitar anymore." Um, no, I don't think he was doing it for the, for that reason. Mm-hmm. I think he realised that he. I think he was. He's been a genius because he's realised that he has to do what. I mean, he has to remain true to himself, and luckily, wherever he's gone. He's a good enough artist that people have followed. Yes. But I think he's just quite early on realised that he can't give a fuck what um, trying to pander to people. Yeah. Because, well, the, the initial problem with him was that he was seen as a some sort of civil rights figure mm-hmm. um, because he sang these topical protest songs. 
Whereas really he was actually, I mean, he did sing those songs, but really his main motivation was being, in his words, a song and dance man. Like he was more about the musical side of it. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, and he was like, well, I don't want to be, I'm not a civil rights leader. And then he, you know, pivoted away from that because he was actually, he's always just been interested in the song and serving the song. It's funny how people like to really analyze music and try and come up with their own, um, their own reasons for it and, and what the narrative was behind the writing of the song like Kurt Cobain's music people would always try and analyze the lyrics and come up with certain meanings for them but a lot of them he just wrote just like last minute well, he, he needed some words yeah the perfect example is just a deodorant brand that came mm. into mind but <laughs> at the same time like that's the interesting thing it doesn't particularly matter where the inspiration came from the fact that it's the fact of what that actually means to the listener mm -hmm. and I know that's what's really interesting with lyrics. Like when you, when I write songs, like I'll, there's a word for it. I can never remember what it is, but mm -hmm. you know, you kind of just sing nonsense lyrics. Yes. And so often they are, you know, they have, that you, they, they actually are the best lyrics. You mm -hmm. don't know where they've come from really. Just um, top of mind, just stream of consciousness lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. And because, at the end of the day, you're trying to tap in. I believe that the great thing about pop, rock, music, hip-hop, whatever the sort of popular song is, it can put into someone's mind or it can communicate what you can't really communicate through words alone. And so if you're tapping into something from your sort of subconscious... Mm -hmm. then hopefully it's likely that that hits someone else's subconscious in the same way. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, it's, that's the great thing about it. No one really understands why does that combination of, um, you know, why is that particular combination of smells like teen spirit, that sort of mm -hmm. thin chorus with guitar mm -hmm. with the kind of that, the weird little riff that's kind of partly stolen off, um, you know, the, the weird minor riff, and then the like. Why does that? Why does that particular combination of things stir so much within people? Yes, um, there's a lot of science in that, isn't there? Like about rhythms and whatnot, and why the brain identifies with repetitive rhythms. Well, well, that's the thing. I think like you could. I think that's the reason. I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like, could a computer? You know, now you're getting computers, but. Mm -hmm. um, can basically outperform humans in a lot of tasks and they can learn. But could a computer ever just analyze a um, hundred Nirvana songs or a hundred of, you know, hundred of the greatest songs and write one as good? Mm -hmm. I don't think, I'd like to think that it couldn't because there's that X factor of whatever makes us human is what goes into. Yeah. I, I reckon. Cobain yeah. Those, those, particular, those particular words over those particular chord changes is something yep. inherently human and that's why that's why music works you know there's a there's a, a million dollar idea there because i reckon a computer could spit out some pretty good stock music that you could like sell on um you know on envato or something or some kind of stock music site for people to use but i don't think it could actually connect with people do good enough music that has that x factor like you say well no i don't i don't think so but you don't think so Oh, no, I agree with, yeah, I agree with you, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, you don't think that a computer could spit out uh, a hit song? 
um, because it's got to have that human element, right? That unique. Not, not maybe. I mean, it probably could, but not like consistently. You know. No, yeah, there'd be an element of chance. Yeah. So who's the? I um, think about that stuff a lot. Um, Yeah. I think songwriting's great because it's something that, you know, you can have all the music. You can have all the music training in the world, know all about chordal theory and Mm -hmm. everything. Um, and not be able to write a good song. Whereas, you know, you can not even be able to play an instrument, have no music training at all. Yeah. And be able to write an amazing song that would change, you know, change change the world, essentially. Well, the the beauty of technology, the technology now in songwriting is that it's kind of giving people the opportunity who don't have that kind of training or necessarily the skill to learn you know, guitars oh, and pianos yeah, really well and to still write music. Hip-hop is the classic example of that. Like yep. I listen to, you listen to some of this stuff and it's just like, this is a beat mm-hmm. with... And you hear, I often, like, because of my, all my social media feeds are filled up with, because I'm, like, downloading, like, plugins or instruments, they're filled up with, mm-hmm. like, different producer tools. And yep. a lot of these are graduated to, and they buy, you know, they obviously buy, it's not like they buy, like, sample packs and... Or, you know, court, they buy, like, sort of things that make... I don't really ever go into them because I don't need them, but, like, sort of, like, chordal, you know, things that play chords for them or something. Yeah. And it's like, they, that's the thing. It's like, you hear these hip, amazing new hip-hop songs. It's just like a beat yeah. with, like, some sort of really cool treated sample. Uh-huh. And and it's, like, you know, way more interesting and progressive than than, like, anything that people playing, like, guitars and... Um, traditional instruments can come come up with come up with. I'm totally on board with like an electronic element to to music these days. Um, like I, like as much as my favorite thing in the world is just a band on stage, but I do I do think it's cool to put the tools in the hands of more people and then more music comes out. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's really like the the guitar band format is. I don't know what else can be really done with it. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's why I think hip-hop is the only... Hip-hop and some other types of electronic music are the only really genres that are progressing and such. Don't you think um, it's interesting that, like, in in the in a time like the 50s, people were just hearing rock music that they'd never heard before? Like, people were losing their minds because there were, there were new sounds that no one had made before, and now, it, within the same lifespan, we're kind of near a point where nothing can surprise you? Yeah, I often think about that. Like, how, how fresh did that seem to them? Like, obviously, there'd been electric guitars, and it wasn't like overnight the Beatles just appeared, there'd been mm. Elvis and... Um, Chuck Berry and you know yeah. before that sort of stuff that had led up to that over 10 years mm-hmm. but I was like I'm rolling off and think what would be the equivalent of this today like what would be as fresh as this and mm-hmm. um, I guess yeah it's, it's hard to really well, I don't think there's any I mean it'll never that was such a unique moment in time and space like the cultural combining with all of that you know the music technology combining with that type of music but I, I think people still really love music. I wonder, like, what will happen? What will be the, you know, how, where will music go mm-hmm. in fifty years? Yeah, I, I think I people think still love really. music, but we're just desensitized to to surprises. I think. Well, I think the the whole streaming thing is that's what's really 
it's a really interesting thing about music because mm. when you think about recorded music, it was only the fact that someone came up with a way to press music onto vinyl. So all of a sudden, music became a song became more of a product. Yeah. Before that, you know, before whenever, you know, before the twentieth century, there'd be like wandering minstrels, folk singers, um, music in church, and then there was you know classical music, and people could sell the sheet music. But really, it was only the invention of the the vinyl pressing that um, meant that you could commodify a song, mm-hmm. and that was. That was, I think it's quite, I think the aberration was that that was that time and now it's reverting back to more like it was before. The music was just, you know, before that, music would have just been something more that was a means of communication in your village or town or within your family or something you did together. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how, what, how all the streaming thing pans out where you can't, you know, it's harder for, well, I don't think it's really reset itself yet. Do you um do you buy vinyl and collect vinyl? Yeah, I, I do. Like I have since the uh, I don't know, fairly I mean, I wouldn't say I did it ever since um I first started to getting seriously into music, but mm. around um two thousand nine, ten when vinyl sort of started coming back into vogue. I mean it's yeah. interesting like the with the label I'm doing, like an artist like Jack Ladder, who's very much a guy who's, you know, will sell vinyl, be his main physical yep. format or only physical format. Yes. His first, I don't think his, his first three albums weren't even on vinyl. Like there was a big, back in 2000, and the thought of putting a record on vinyl went between, before 2010 was, yeah. no one, hardly anyone did it. Yes. Whereas now it's de rigueur. You're not, you're not even bothering with a CD much now these days, right? Oh, I haven't bought a CD for, oh, you know, oh, I don't know, it was like 15 years or something. You know, there's a there's a store near me that's just a CD and video, st- like CD and DVD store. Like they don't sell vinyl <laughs> and they don't sell anything else. It's just literally CDs and DVDs and I have no idea how they're open. <laughs> it, is, it is bonkers, man. Like at least like you get I mean, CDs doing JB Hi-Fi, but they got all the vinyl as well, which is what people are actually buying. My old man's still on the on the CD. Is he? And um, I go to his house, and he's got a really good sound system. And look, there's no doubt CD sound quality is is superlative. And mm. you know, people talk about the sound quality of vinyl. I mean, yeah, it's, it's good, but you know, it's never going to, in terms of just high fidelity, it's never matches the CD. But then, yeah, you've got you know, you've got web files now that can be easily. Bluetooth or whatever. But the, th- but the thing is, like, pe- people really talk... Like, I mean, the thing I like about vinyl is, like, um, I mean, I'll buy vinyl and never listen to it because I just, you know, sometimes I just can't be bothered finding it in the pile. I'll just put yeah. it on through my... But I love... I just love the, the physical format of it and having it. In fact, yep. a very interesting thing happened recently to this nurse I worked with called Damo. Real yeah. legend. Shout out to Damo if he's listening. Probably yeah. not. <laughs> Bloody good, really funny bloke. Yeah, um, yeah. Bendigo, Bendigo lad. And yep. um, he bought a, him and his mate bought a deceased estate. Okay. Um, you know how you can like, I don't know, they, you know, it's like if someone dies and they don't have relatives, they sort of auction their whole 
set of belongings or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I did this for this guy down in Bendigo, and it turned out he had this collection of 5,000 vinyl. Wow. Um, and he started going through it, and this guy was just obviously an extremely avid Australian music fan, mm. and it's probably the most... One of, it would be one of the best record collections of Australian music that probably exists. So wow. it goes right back to the easy beats. Um, not only does he have all the sort of first pressings of all of his stuff, he's got all these things like test pressings of, of like, you know, he's got like the Sunny Boys first album, like the test pressing of it. Wow. He's got like all the, so for certain bands like Go Betweens and the Triffids, he's just got everything that was ever released. So that like there was a Japanese you know, Japanese release of, like, their second album or something. He's got that. Wow. He's got um, these radio... They used to put out sort of promotional vinyl of, like... It'd be like a radio interview with, you know, the go-betweens plus four tracks they'd done live in the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, he, yeah, he's got this collection. Um, so where are these records now? Stuff, they're at his house. And he wants, like, he needs to, he doesn't want to just sell them. He doesn't really want to split up the collection, but he wants to, Yeah. basically he's trying to flog the collection off to me. But the problem is it's, like, <laughs> worth so much money. Like, he's priced, he's priced only, like, 300 of them on Discogs and it already comes up to, like, $80,000 retail. Wow. Yeah, and then what the collection is won, he's trying to palm it off to you for, for 100 grand or something. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the problem. It's, like, who's going to buy, who's got the money to buy a record collection for eighty thousand dollars but also yeah that's anyway. a very niche sale to make that's a very specific well it almost it almost belongs it almost belongs in a museum but mm. that kind of stuff i just love like and that i think that's what i tend towards with record i like buy bands that are my friends mm. local bands stuff that you is is it, it will necess- you know you're always going to be able to go and get a bloody um you know, for the next 40 years, I'm sure you'll be able to get a King Gizzard vinyl. That's right. Um, but, you know, these bands bands that exist, maybe only for one album or whatever, mm-hmm. you're never going to, you know, that stuff can get lost when, when, when Spotify goes under or whatever. That yeah. stuff can get lost completely. And, yeah, that's why it's good to have a document of it, I feel. Well, that's also... I always found that interesting about the Adelaide scene. Yeah. There's lots of really cool bands from the 80s and 90s in Adelaide. Yep. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were on this label called Greasy Pop Records, run by a guy called Doug Thomas. Right. Um, but Adelaide was very isolated, didn't really have much proper music industry. It went through the, you know, it's really had a pretty um, potted history in music, in the music scene. Like, And so those bands are just forgotten. Like, yes. there's no, they were never, bands like the Triffids, Go Betweens, whatever. Mm-hmm. birthday party they've got record labels that still can make money off them mm-hmm. um so it's in their interest to you know sell the books and um and not to disrespect to those bands they're amazing and their legacy should be preserved yes but if you don't have that your band just is you know there's no one no one's there to put it on spotify mm-hmm. no one's there to do a reissue no one's there to talk about it and in also in cities like melbourne for example like you've got so many more people that have been in the, that are lifers. So they've been in the scene since they're 18 through to the time they're 60. So they can mm. keep talking about those bands and telling their stories and whatever. Whereas in Adelaide, it kind of doesn't have that. So there's these bands that are just, 
they're kind of lost. I, don't, I think that's kind of quite quite sad because there's some really good music. There's, and this would happen all around the world. Yes. Really good music for whatever reason. They never had the industry success. And then you, no one ever gets to hear it again. You see, there'd be amazing bands all over the world who played one or two shows and they had fantastic songs, but, you know, they just didn't have the time and resources to keep it going. Well, exactly, exactly, yeah. So, something about the, the the tangible collector's item as well, it's like when you were a kid, like I used to collect like NBA basketball cards, but like what what's the point in having a piece of cardboard with the picture of the player on it when I can turn on the TV and watch the game, but for some reason Larry is that... Johnson, Larry Johnson, rookie card. <laughs> yeah, Charles um, Barkley, electric morning, gold. Hologram, hologram special edition. <laughs> Hell yeah, I man. Them, I was big into it as well. Yeah, so was um, Buns. I, I bet my mum threw them out. Dude, I, I saw mine. That was at my parents. Probably ones in there that are worth thousands now. <laughs> yeah, I saw mine. Mine the other day. I was at my parents' place the other weekend, and I found all mine. And I reckon like that, like a lot of value of these cards went up for a bit, and then I think we're in a massive dip now, where they're pretty much worth nothing. But maybe down the track that we were <laughs> selling again, I think the value's Hoops, fallen off. Hoops was the brand, and then maybe Upper yeah. Deck or something. Yeah, Upper Deck, NBA Hoops, uh, Skybox. And Fleer. Yeah, and there was basically only one shop that sold them, which sold also the basketball uniforms for yes, the club. Yes, I, I know exactly what you're thinking of. Um, yeah. They're Pro Bowl. They're it called Pro like Bowl. Goodwood, Goodwood Road yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, on, uh, yeah. They, yeah, yeah, Pro Hartley Bowl. Road or Goodwood Road. I remember because... I always had... I'd be going in there to get them, <laughs> and I was like, Mama, can I get a few packs? And she's like... Alexander, what, what do you want these for? <laughs> I they're, can't believe you'd go to the same place. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and then you'd have these foil packets and you'd fuck it open. Yes. That's why, that's why um, people still are into Pokemon cards. Um, people, are, people are back into that shit. Yeah. And the thing is, that's the problem with collect. I was like, okay, maybe, maybe if I go crazy, I could sell out this mm-hmm. money. For this record collection. Yeah. You know, it's more than a car. It's probably going to cost more than a car, but fuck it. And then, and, but it's a really good, in, I started to think, oh, well, it's a really good investment. But I was like, well, who, when are you ever going to sell them? You're not going to like buy these amazing, that's the problem with these collecting things. You're yeah. buying them, you're never going to sell them. So there's, there's no, their, their value as a collectible is nothing because you couldn't yeah. ever part with it, that stuff. Like, do you, you either buy them wanting to enjoy them or you value them and see if you can get it for a steal so you can resell it, right, and flip it? Yeah, but who's going to... You can't... Like, it would feel like... It would feel like prostitution flipping a... Um, yeah. Flipping a... Imagine flipping, like, these amazing go-betweens records and the, the test yeah. of X, I don't want to go out. You're locked into them like if you buy them. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, Camo, uh, before before we finish, tell me about Endless because I know you've uh, recently done the done that ten year anniversary of Hertzville for Jack Ladder. Well, Endless is um, a record label that I started. I've been wanting to do it for a fair amount of time. Mm-hmm. Then I guess COVID probably was the impetus. I had a bit more time to be sitting around and mm. sending emails and whatnot. Many people tried to start new things during that time. Hey, a lot of a lot of pianos <laughs> were sold. I think a lot of electric keyboards were sold and have never been used. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, I, I've always, as much as I mean, I really like songwriting and um, making music, mm. but I've always been kind of interested in the. I wouldn't say the industry because I, the industry is was parts of that that I absolutely abhor, mm-hmm. but. Um, I've always been interested in how you package um, 
the story that you put around a particular release or an artist mm-hmm. in order to make that their music even better. Like in all the great stories about the famous acts, it's never just the band. It's like the Beatles plus Brian Epstein. It's, the, it's like um, it's um, and he, he's a manager, obviously. Yes. But it's you know, Joy Division plus Factory Records, or it's Nirvana and Sub Pop. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, so managers, record labels, sort of the same. But in those stories, those people are the ones that could see the potential of these artists. Yeah. But also use their creativity um, in order to make those artists as great as they became. Mm-hmm. Whether that was, you know, whether that was pushing them in a certain musical direction, whether it was linking them up with other, with the right producers, whether mm-hmm. it was, you know, deciding how they should even, you know, how they should present themselves. Yeah. I found that side of things to be very interesting because I think that's a key part of like pop music um, and what makes it exciting and great. Like it is, that's the part that kind of links it to culture and um, evolve. that's the part that's a link between music and pop culture. That's a really um, interesting answer to the question because that's not what I expect you to say. And I've never thought of it like that, that, um, that you want to be part of that the influential what do you side think I, would say? I, don't, I don't know you could have just said it's something something i've always wanted to do and i thought it'd be a cool idea and i and i wanted to get exposure to some bands that that i like i don't know but i've never thought yeah, of it like well, that it's a very interesting point that's that's the prime motivation and what i i found it very frustrating in my experience is that i've never had that from really any part of the music industry mm-hmm. and um luckily after being involved in music pretty seriously for coming up to 15 years now. Mm-hmm. You've developed some knowledge and, and connections with different people that allow me to, um, I think, do that um, and do justice to some of the to, to artists that I really like. Yeah. So that's the essence of it. And then the practical practicalities of it is that I've got really good, two really good people that are, joined it with me which is Dan Radburn who's yeah. manages Bad Dreams and other bands mm-hmm. who's a very trusted confidant yes and um, I just I just said confidant in a threat accent I'm sorry I didn't mean to say that I don't know confidant <laughs> um, yeah yeah I didn't mean to do that sorry. I don't know how to <laughs> say like, it either I just went with felt, it yeah that felt really David Brent um, <laughs> and um, and Luke Stevenson, McLean Stevenson, who's a, you know, um, yep. he's a photographer, videographer, mm-hmm. and um, which, yeah, that's sort of a key, that's like what I, speaks to what I was just talking about, but he's actually part of the label, but he's, yeah. you know, a creative that, and we, as part of the, the deals we're doing with people, like they, um, you know, he's directly involved with making their photos and videos. Yeah. Or, I think that's or fantastic. And, uh, One of my favourite photographers. Yeah, so, He's unbelievably talented. Yeah, so that's the yeah that's what's been really good having those. And what I found is just it just all comes fairly easily. Like, in fact, it's it's easy because you have that same 
you can have some of that same passion and drive that you have when you're doing your own music, but mm. you're distanced enough from it that you, it's easier to make, well, it's a bit easier to make clear-headed decisions about things because yeah. you're not, it's actually not your music you're working with. But the great thing is I get some of the same satisfaction in, mm. in seeing stuff come together without having to go through the torturous process of, 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 of making, um, you know, obviously still doing that in bad dreams. But um, it's interesting. It's good to sort of be able to sit on the outside and, and not be so, have it so, um, be so closely connected to it. Well, there's a lot going on for you, Camo, with Endless and between Endless, Baddies, because I know you guys are working on a new album and then also work as well. Yeah, it's been a busy month. Like, I mean, did I tell you that my car got stolen and used in a high-speed chase? Your new car? Yeah. When, when did that happen? I got back from playing that show in Adelaide that we did. Luckily, as I always... You know, you'd know, in the, you probably would have come across this because you would have come across this in the band setting because as your listeners know, you, you are a member of Bad Dreams and have played a good stint at... A tour. Some, sometimes. Mm. Sometime member. Mm-hmm. That, that's part of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel very strongly about not leaving equipment in the car. Yeah. I don't know if, if we ever had this. We surely would have happened when we were in England. It was like someone, it's, you know, late at night, everyone's fucking tired. It's like, let's just leave the gear here. Yeah. Always, everyone like, wants to leave it in the van after the show. It's always tempting. Um, but yeah, always yeah. got to pull it together and never, put it in a hotel. It's just, it's just never. Yeah. Anyway, so luckily I unloaded all the gear and I had, I had like other people's gear as well. Yeah. Um, went to bed. At five thirty in the morning, there's someone on my veranda, and they like said, like knock knock, to sort of woke me from sleep. Mm. They're like, what the, what the fuck? And they sort of walked away. Though, and I was like, oh, it just must be some drunk kid or vagrant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah some a few vagrant. Hours later, go out the front. My car's gone. And I'm like, oh, hang on. Did I just I did I forget where I parked it? Looked around, it's not there. Um, yeah. So I was like, my car's been bloody stolen. And the problem was I had to just start operating, like, you know, I had a whole list of operating to do. Yeah. I had to catch an Uber there. You can't really just hold, you know, you can't really just hold that up, so. No. And at the same time, I'm calling the police, I've reported it. And, like, I don't want to, I'm not going to disclose what time. It was a new car and it had mm. the keyless ignition and whatnot. Yeah. So how the fuck did this get stolen and what can I do about it? So I rang up the car dealer and I said, look, is it, is there anything I can do? Can you shut down these cars remotely or anything? And they're like, well, you can't, but what you can, it's got a, it's got a tracking device in it. So just like there's an app on your phone that you, you have with the car. Yeah. They so said, just look in that and um, you can see where the car is. And if you find that, just ring triple zero. Don't screw around with that other police number. Just ring triple zero. Yeah. So I open up the app and sure enough, the car's out at this place called Serpentine, which is 50 Ks from Bendigo or something. Yeah. So I ring up the police, triple zero, and I get this really nice woman. She's like a sergeant or detective sergeant called Veronica. Mm-hmm. And, to, and I said, look, my car's been stolen. I've got this GPS thing. She's like, well, send it through. Send all the screenshots and we'll go out and get it. I was like, okay, did that. And she's like, look, just, if it moves, just keep your eye on the app. If the car moves, just ring me on my mobile. She gives me a number. Yeah. So I start operating. 
I give the phone to the trusty orderly, like the theatre technician guy. Yeah. You know, the guys that, like, lift the patients and put them on, push them around. And this guy called Craig, he's a legend. The one who, like you're, Craig, when you're, like, scalpel, they hand you the scalpel? No, no, that's the nurse that does that. Oh, he's right. the guy that's more, like, you know, lifts the patient onto the bed and, like, pushes them around on the trolleys. He actually does all the hard work. Okay, gotcha. Like, Craig, just keep a hold of this. If that dot moves, just tell me. So I'm operating. 15 minutes later, he's like, it's bloody moving. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, bring it over here. Sure enough, there's this little dot, like, heading down the road towards the town of Serpentine. And it comes to a stop at the Serpentine Caltex, according to the map. Yeah. So I ring up Veronica. Well, I get, I'm scrubbed in in theatre. Craig rings up Veronica. Yeah. I'm like, Veronica, the car's at the, the Caltex Serpentine. It's moved. And she's like, What? And then she's like in the background, like 10 4, 7, 8, 10, 4, 8, 3, Sierra, Oscar, Sierra. Oh, shit, go, go, go. And I'm like, what the hell? There's all this like commotion in on the other end of the phone. You and got your hands in a body. Well, I'm, well, I paused, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they mute, they mute this sort of other end of the line. And um, then she comes back in about a minute and she's like, look, yep. That, we were actually just doing our briefing next to the Caltex, uh, Caltex, about to go out there. And, yep, the GPS was right. That was your car at the Caltex Serpentine. So we boxed it in. Unfortunately, he's rammed one of the police cars um, and taken off at a very high speed on the wrong side of the road. And I was like, well, yep, the car can go pretty fast. <laughs> and she's like, well, we haven't given chase at the moment. I said, yeah, yeah, well, don't. Don't endanger anyone's lives because just the car. Yeah. She's like, just look, keep looking at the app and tell us where's it, where it goes. So then the stop's like heading down, down around these like country roads. And then it comes to a stop at a certain place. And I'm like, oh, it stopped at this address. She's like, okay, we'll go out there. And then she's, then she's like, I'll call you back. And then the, the car had run out of petrol. Yeah. Um, and they chased. They chased these three occupants across the field, cuffed and collared them. Yep. Um, bleeding on the ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, yeah, arrested them. Amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, yeah, it, so it seems so like such a, it seems so interesting that you had the app and they're like, well, gi just give us a call. We just give us a call on our mobile and they head out there straight away. Detective Veronica. I thought Veronica, I wish, I, I've been meaning to, I will be writing a letter of commendation for her because she was so, I mean, not only that post, but then afterwards, then she kept, like she kept, called, she called me up and kept me informed about like what had happened and mm -hmm. like, I would have thought they're like, no, it's a police investigation, we can't see anything, but she was like, told me everything about, because I was, it was quite scary because I was like, how the hell did they get my key? Like, have they been into my house? And they staked it out. Who mm -hmm. are these people? And she, but she was like, you know, told up and told, took me through all this stuff. So it was, a, you know, the police obviously get a bad rap. Yeah. Sometimes a good reason, but in this case, um, uh, they sorted you out. They're very good. Veronica was very good. If, if she's listening, I'll, I really, I'm going to I'm going to make sure you get a letter of commendation. From, and, uh, <laughs> and you should recommend her. Yeah. Recommend her for the medal of valor. I think. In, in GPS assisted, Mm -hmm. Car seat yeah. tracking. <laughs> yeah. High speed chase. Well, I mean, you know? I, what, where's my where's my medal in this? I'm the one that coordinated the investigation essentially. Yeah, that's right. You've quarterbacked this whole thing. 
whilst yeah. whilst while uh, fixing someone you know someone in their reconstructive surgery at the same time <laughs> i think you deserve a medal camo well done congratulations and what's the condition of the car what happened to the car after that written off oh really so there's another t- time for another yeah. new car for you well yes let's just say i've put in there is insurance coming through and a new car has been Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe you have to share that with me uh, off the air, the <laughs> the exact details of the car, because I'm very, very interested. Modest. It may have a keyless ignition. It's a very modest car. Okay. Modest. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Camo, it's been an absolute pleasure. A... And I feel yeah, like you should come on again. You should come on again sometime soon, because I feel like we can keep going for hours. No, thanks. I really enjoyed this conversation. And... This... Um, I've enjoyed your podcast and I'll keep tuning in. That's excellent. This this is the longest podcast that we've had. A, yeah, I mean, we never got to talk about one of the very special things between us, which is our relationship yep. as roommates. That's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll save that for next time because that's, that's a perfect way for us to jump off next time we do an episode, maybe in a couple of weeks. What do you think? Because yeah. as a little the teaser. No, the no judgment, the no judgment roommate. That's right. The, that's something cool. bonded us and we became roommates uh, when, when we were on tour. And, uh, and we call it the No Judgment Room. That's it. Yeah, we haven't even it's spoken about that. No Justice. Also the No Justice Room. No Judgment, No Justice. Do you miss the No Judgment, yeah. judgment Room? I miss it so much. Um, look, there's parts of it I miss, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. You don't, you, I know you don't like everything about being on tour. I don't miss being in some shitty northern town in the middle of winter. <laughs> Yeah. Hung over to the bone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hung over to the bone in hung over to the bone in fucking like some somewhere a couple hours north of Glasgow. Aberdeen. Aberdeen. Aberdeen was nice, but like <laughs> some bit of greenery to eat so that you don't get scurvy. Popping into an M and S on the side of the road. Psychosis. Oh man. As it creeps through the, the northern darkness. Oh, and then the motion sickness in the van as the weather comes down and then you got to listen to the sound check of buns on the on the snare drum going, bah, bah, bah. <laughs> sound check, sound check. Oh, my God, I hate it. Remember when I took to try to read a book during sound check just to try and get through it? Yeah. But on stage? Yeah, I remember worked. that. I remember that very well. Oh, God. Oh, well, yeah, okay, well, I'd love to come back on, Steve. I don't know if anyone has... Everyone that's probably tuned in probably got bored in the surgical part of this chat, but... No, I don't care, though. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it. It's my podcast. Well, exactly. Fuck them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but let's, let's go... Come on again in a couple of weeks. What's... It doesn't even go online. I'm like, can we? Can you just give me a call? I feel like a chat. Can we book it in? Can we book it in for Wednesday at seven? (laughs) Oh, good on you, Camo. All right. See you. See you, Steve. See you, mate. Take it easy.